Are you looking for more ways to learn about military and veteran culture? Are you a mental health professional or public health professional without lived experience in the military but find yourself working with veterans? Are you a caregiver or a family member of a veteran? Then you might be interested in a series of books that have been released with you in mind. By going to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash books, you can check out three books that give you an insight into veteran mental health from a combat veteran perspective. These books are a collection of short, consumable essays that discuss a wide range of topics related to mental health and wellness in post-military life. Head on over to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash books and check them out for yourself or follow the link in the show notes. This is Inside the Military Mind, addressing mental health and wellness for service members, veterans, and their families with your host, Wayne France. Brought to you by Family Care Center, offering behavioral health services for both children and adults and specializing in services for military families and veterans. Family Care Center, our family caring for your family. Now, here's Dwayne France. Hello and welcome to Inside the Military Mind. My name is Dwayne France, and each week we'll be talking about mental health and wellness for the military-affiliated population. Coming up in today's guest segment, I'll be having a conversation with Nicole Weiss, Director of Community Training and Empowerment for the Lida Hill Institute for Human Resilience. Later, I'll be sharing the Homefront Military Network Resource of the Week, Goodwill of Colorado. On this week's Insight segment of the show, I'd like to talk about how service members and veterans can face obstacles that seem insurmountable. Our show is brought to you by the Family Care Center, the community's leading provider of outpatient behavioral health for service members, veterans, and their families. Those who serve our country deserve the best that our community can offer, and when it comes to mental health and wellness, it's important for them to work with someone that they can trust and can understand their unique challenges and needs related to mental health. Whether you're looking for individual counseling, couples counseling, or management and consultation regarding mental health medications, you'll find what you need at the Family Care Center. Take some time to focus on you by going to fcsprings.com and allow our family to care for your family. On today's Insights into the Military Mind, I'd like to talk about what service members or veterans can do to face inevitable or insurmountable obstacles. Military folks are go-to, get-or-done kind of people. I was having a conversation recently about the amount of time that it takes to get things done in the civilian world and how we see it differently in the military. At the operational level, we move from planning to execution in a matter of months, days, or even minutes. The flexibility and responsiveness of the military decision-making process, whether it's the more formal process or the grunt-level troop-leading procedures, means that we observe something, decide how to react, and then react. However, there were times in our military career, and now in post-military life, that no amount of effort on our part could change the outcome. When we set foot in a new duty station, we're going to inevitably leave that duty station at some point. Now, this may be a welcome blessing. I'm thinking about the time that I spent at Fort Polk, Louisiana, but it may also be a dreaded occurrence. I know people that spent nearly their entire career at Fort Bragg, and I sure did what I could do to stay at Fort Carson for the final third of my career. There are things that we just can't influence, no matter how much we want to. There's a concept in dialectical behavior therapy called radical acceptance. This is what it means to radically accept reality. We need to accept reality as it is. The facts about the past and the present are facts, even if we don't like them. We need to realize that there are limitations on the future for everyone, but only realistic limitations need to be accepted. That everything has a cause, including events and situations that cause pain and suffering, and that life can be worth living even with painful events in it. So how do we apply the concept of radical acceptance to insurmountable problems? What do we do when we lose a loved one despite our best efforts, or a fellow veteran takes their own life in spite of how we tried to save them? When our relationship ends, or the kids leave, or the job we love, or the job we need is taken from us? 
How, in other words, do we accept the fact that we can't overcome something, that we, as we describe it to ourselves, fail? One thought is to tell yourself that these weren't your obstacles to overcome. Many of us have a challenge accepting defeat. It's the no quit, never say die attitude that generates success. But how often do we place that on something that's not ours to conquer? It may not have been my fight. I need to learn to be okay with that. It may have been an impossible fight against unbeatable odds. That doesn't diminish my effort, and it doesn't require my despair about the loss. As I told my soldiers when I was in the military, sometimes you have to fight the fight that you know that you can't win just to be able to say that you fought the fight. Acknowledge the effort, appreciate the struggle, but understand it may not have been your fight from the beginning. And then, knowing that it would still end in defeat if you had to do it all over again, you would still fight just to be able to say that you did. We also need to realize that none of us are superheroes. I'm not going to stop the flow of Niagara Falls. I'm not going to stand against a hurricane. The forces of nature that are arrayed against me, there's no way that I'm going to make any amount of impact on those things. The list of things that I can't control are infinite. The rotation of the earth, the impact of gravity, the actions of another person. These are simply beyond our ability. Is accepting the limitations of ability defeat? Is recognizing that we're not superheroes, but a fallible, mistake-prone human being a failure? To me, it's reality. Thinking that I have the ability to beat the game when the odds are so stacked against me or that I can achieve the impossible can lead to frustration and despair. We also need to realize that words have meaning and words have power. We all know that. We can talk about euphemisms and trying to clean something up to make it seem like something more than it's not, but a sanitation technician is still a garbage man. The motor transport operator is still a truck driver. We can call it mental health, behavioral health, mental wellness, mental illness, but it's still talking about the same thing. The difference is the meaning that we place on the words. A friend and mentor of mine, Christopher Lockhead, said, When we were younger, we used to call people who lived on the streets winos and bums. Now we call them homeless people. We treat homeless people differently than we treat winos and bums. If we call the end of a struggle against impossible odds a defeat, then we're going to feel defeated. If we say, I failed against something as inevitable as death or a natural disaster, then we will feel like a failure. This isn't a circle of life discussion like in The Lion King, but then again, it sort of is. If we see the end as the true end and our inability to control inevitability as a failure, then we will have truly been defeated. So we need to focus on what we control. We need to understand how we can deal with it. There's always a moment just after the fight ends. What we do next, how we think next, is going to determine our future success. We're now someone who has weathered a great storm. We may have been bruised and broken, but we're wiser. There's more that we understand. We know the sting of pain in a way that we didn't know it before. And that's a valuable lesson. That's what we can control, our reactions to the inevitable. We can't control the inevitable. I can control my will in the moment after life has knocked me down. I can control my heart, my nerves, my muscles and bones, continue on in a life after the inevitable end. Learning that, too, is a valuable lesson. So I appreciate the opportunity to share some of these insights with you. You agree? Disagree? Great to hear what you think. Share them with us by dropping an email to militarymind at FCCSprings.com. Today's interview segment is with Nicole Weiss, a licensed professional counselor and director of community training and empowerment for the Lida Hill Institute for Human Resilience at UCCS. Nicole is a 2016 graduate of the UCCS Master's in Clinical Psychology program with an emphasis in trauma. In her previous role as a clinical therapist with the Veterans Health and Trauma Clinic, Nicole provided peer support training to several organizations in Colorado, taught the trauma training for professionals online program, 
managed the GRIT coaching program, and liaisoned with the 4th Judicial District Veterans Trauma Court. Nicole is skilled in de-escalation and specializes in working through crises and with first responders. Let's get into my conversation with Nicole and come back afterwards to talk about this week's Homefront Military Network Resource of the Week. So we've worked together as colleagues supporting a local veteran trauma court, so I'm familiar with your work as a mental health counselor. I'm interested in hearing your background. What got you started in working as a therapist for the military-affiliated population? Yeah, so I'll start first by just um, what got me interested in being a therapist to begin with. I came from a, come from a very large family. Um, I have nine siblings, so very loud, very big household. Um, And I feel like when you have that kind of a household, somebody always ends up being a counselor, right? Um, And then in particular, I started getting uh, involved in military because my brother, he was actually in the Air Force. Um, And interestingly, you know, small world kind of thing, he actually um, had a lot of legal problems coming out of the military because of his PTSD. Mm. He wasn't getting a lot of help at the time. He was really struggling, didn't have a lot of support in his, you know, primary nuclear family outside of the siblings and my mom. Um, And so he was just really struggling, kind of got into some legal challenges, ended up having to go to jail because of it. At that time where we were, a veterans trauma court didn't exist, Mm -hmm. right? And so that all happened right around the time that I was in my undergrad program. And I was in undergrad for psychology. And as I started to hear his struggles and really started to understand the impact the PTSD was having on his life, and in particular, the current struggles he was having and the lack of help, that's what really prompted me to go forward into working as counselor in that field. Um, It's not easy to work in the military field, um, but I continued to drive at that. I went to school at the University of Colorado, Colorado Springs, in particular for their trauma track. And in doing so, I was able to intern at the Veteran Health and Trauma Clinic, which I now am still still affiliated with. Um, And so I got to continue to work with military and really start to hear and see the particular struggles going on within them. From then, I just kind of never let go of that clinic. Um, I love working there and I've continued to work with military. My work has now transitioned into working with first responders as well. And I also work in crisis and resilience. Those are really my two passion projects now. Um, So my brother is what initially got it started. He, I'm happy to say, is doing wonderfully now. He got a lot of the help he needed, was able to sort through a lot of those challenges, um, now lives beautifully in Iowa, where he just thrives on kind of being a nomad country guy. Um, but he's doing so great now, and it's because he was finally able to get some of that help that counselors now can provide. I think that's really critical uh, for people to understand that as we come into the mental health field, we, there are reasons, right? Mm-hmm. You know, your brother and his experiences, my father and his brothers, my uncle's experiences, um, and really this idea of getting involved in the criminal justice system, the reasons for misconduct today aren't the same as they were 25, 30 years ago, right? right. Um, because of the impact of, of combat and things like that. And people don't seem to understand that. Right. It goes so much deeper, right? So, we, you know, we have these issues in life. We, we get into some challenges. We obviously make mistakes. But with a lot of the individuals in the military, out of the military, who also have PTSD, it goes so much deeper than that, right? They're having these behaviors and decisions that are often rooted in some serious trauma they've experienced inside, outside of the military. Uh, it's one of the things I'm so passionate about with Veterans Trauma Court, why I'm so excited to work with them is because we get to kind of unravel some of those things and really get those members the help they really deserve, right? We're not looking down on any of these individuals because they're in the justice system. We're looking at them and saying, what happened to you and how can we help you with that? 
We really haven't, I think, discussed the, the Veteran Trauma Court. I hope to get Jug Jakes on the show yeah. at some point in the future. Um, but this idea of the, the court is there to be able to provide the services from the Department of Veterans Affairs, from clinicians like you and I, um, that aren't available elsewhere. Right. Right. Yeah, we get to see them. And, and again, we get to kind of piece the, together their story. What happened to you? What did you experience? Again, inside and outside the military. But often what we see is these experiences and challenges they've experienced inside the military that they don't get to talk about very often, or it's uncomfortable or it's difficult to talk about. And so bringing together trained trauma clinicians within the VA with, and outside, like you said, in our community, we're able to really uncover some of those challenges and get these men and women help they actually need and deserve because of the experiences they've been through. And unfortunately for many of them, it takes getting in front of the judge in, in, in a sort of that wake-up call, right? That yeah. awareness of being able to see, I never saw myself standing in a courtroom in front of a judge being in legal trouble. Um, and that's sort of the, the final straw that says, hey, maybe I do need some help. Right, right. And then it also accompanies a therapist, um, often trauma-trained, that also gets to sit with them and say, hey, not only did you go through this, this might be why you went through this and why you're having such a difficult time coming out of it. Right. And a lot of times we don't get that opportunity. And we don't get that opportunity um, as trauma therapists to be able to communicate that because a lot of times people, maybe they, they skirt just up to the edge and they don't mm -hmm. get into legal trouble. And, and um, you know, and again, with my, my father and my uncle sort of just living lives of chaos, but never getting to such a point where life becomes so chaotic that if they just went to see a therapist, for example, a lot of these things can be resolved. Right. And that kind of reflects back on my brother's experience. I remember, I mean, I was, again, I was in early college at the time. Um, so I was still pretty young myself, but I remember him, you know, metaphorically standing there screaming, I need help. Somebody help me. And nobody's hearing him. Right. And so sometimes those are the situation we find our men and women and from the military in, in the legal trouble where they're standing there screaming for help. And unfortunately it takes it in front of a judge, like you said, to say, okay, we're going to, we're going to help you now. Right. That you've, you've been struggling so long. We're going to just step in and we're going to get some help going your way. And we're going to see what that can do for you. I, wish my brother had had that experience right like I said luckily now he's in a beautiful amazing place but you know could we rewind the clock 10 years ago and get him in front of a helpful empathetic helping judge at that time I mean we we might have been looking at a different trajectory for him and I think that's one of the challenges yes with all of the resources that the veteran court has um, but unfortunately we have to get to the crisis point mm -hmm. to be able to get the help um, you know, there were probably many opportunities for your brother, for my family members, for a lot of the veterans we know, many opportunities that they were reaching out for help and the resources weren't there. And it wasn't until a major thing happened um, that we were able to finally get all the resources to come to bear. Yes, exactly. And that's why I'm really excited to be in the position I'm in now at our institute, which I know we'll talk about in a little bit. But I get the opportunity now to provide education and, and support resilience so that when and if these 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 topics, these conversations, these experiences come up, these men and women know how to get help before it even got to that point. Yeah. And I, this is something that I've been really thinking about recently is this idea that a lot of the work we do is last mile work, right? Mm -hmm. You know, right at the end of, of, you know, sort of pre-crisis, during crisis. You know, I've always said if, if we were medical doctors, we'd be emergency room docs, right? They'd Absolutely. be coming in with, you know, thousands of cuts. And really it's how do we move from this last mile to getting up ahead of, you know, first mile interventions, right? True mm -hmm. prevention. And, and that's really, and you just talked about how you've recently shifted into the 
role of Director of Community Training Empowerment for the Lida Hill Institute for Human Resilience. Uh, so this is a little bit more of that first mile, trying to get things before they get out of hand. Uh, this is a program out of UCCS that works to advance resilience to adversity through a number of different avenues. What can you tell me about the Institute? Yeah, so I'm so proud and happy to be part of the Institute. Um, before this, we were called the Trauma Health and Hazard Center. So Dr. Charles Benight is the director of the Institute. He started the Trauma Health and Hazard Center over a decade ago and wanting to really look at adversity and trauma in a different lens. So again, how do we look at it through a lens of resilience? How do we get you through those experiences you've had without necessarily only focusing on what's wrong with you, right? Um, and coincidentally, right as the pandemic was really ramping up in Colorado last year in 2020, um, we received a challenge gift grant from the Lida Hill Foundation to start the Lida Hill Institute for Human Resilience. And that's what's now up and going. Um, but our work is through a threefold division. We have healing, research, and the community training and empowerment division, which is what I now oversee. And we, the goal is to kind of look at individuals from all of these levels, right? From the pre what's, what's going on with you, how do we equip you with the best coping skills possible? And a lot of that comes from education, resilience work, um, breaking down some stigmas and being allowed to talk about mental health and what you're going through and then into the healing division. So if you did experience something, now we have clinicians that are equipped in that trauma level research to better help and better um, heal you from the inside out, working on that holistic whole body experience. And then research, being able to kind of follow that through all of those stages. See, and I think this is one of the things is, again, the idea of healing is healing, but healing is usually a post-event thing, mm -hmm. right? You have to heal from something. Um, love to have a, a, a greater conversation about resilience, right? You know, a buzzword. You know, we, we've been talking. Oh, year, I mean, especially the word of the year. In the, in the military, right? You know, um, even as early as 2012, I went through master resilience training in the Army and a number of different, you know, so from, from your standpoint or maybe from the Institute's point of view, what are they talking about when they, when you're talking about resilience? Resilience for us, I think, is how you got through it, right? What, what got you, what pushed you through that experience? We all have a level of resilience in some way. I think some of the silver lining of the past year is that it's kind of been proven how we've gotten through extreme stress. So how can we take those experiences, look back on them and say, how did I get through it then? And how can I use that to get through it now? So how did you get through it, basically, is that is the kind of over-encompassing way I look at it. Um, you know, we've all been through stress in some level. Some of us have been through extreme, in extreme trauma. In fact, the VA estimates that about 50% of uh, women, 60% of men have mm -hmm. been through a traumatic event in their life. I would estimate that number is actually way higher if we were to actually get into the, you know, the nitty gritty and ask really what's been going on in your life. Um, but most of us have been through trauma. All of us have been through stress and you're still standing here. So what got you through it? Whether that was your support system, your own coping skills, that level of grit inside you that just pushed you through. And sometimes we forget what got us through those events. So when we're standing here facing stress now, being able to look back and say, well, how did I get through it then? And how can I apply it now? I think is a big level of resilience and pushing forward. And I think it's not just uh, individual resilience, but it's probably um, resilience to 
uh, other people's situations around you. Again, going back to your situation, uh, a measure of your resilience was your response to your brother's situation, right? right? You know, this was your way to um, not not necessarily help your brother. I knew I couldn't be my father's therapist, my uncle's therapist, right? But that was one of the things that got me into mental health was. I saw that this generation's soldiers were going to experience the same thing that generation did, and I need to help that. So that's what you're talking about is a response and resilience. It was traumatic for you to see what your brother was going through, um, but also it, your brother had a measure of resilience to overcome what he went through, and you had a measure of that to sort of go in a different direction. Yeah, and I think we can learn from those experiences, both internal or what our own, what we went through ourselves and also what the people around us are going through and apply that to the future stress or future whatever is going on. Um, I think that's a lot of the kind of passion projects I'm with now is providing some of that education. Again, breaking down that stigma. It's okay to talk about these challenges. Again, we've all been through, we've all been through some level of stress and it's okay to talk about it, right? We don't need to hold these experiences away because we're afraid of how people will judge us. Or we're afraid of what kind of experiences we'll have when we talk about it. If we can continue to spread that education and support, then it becomes easier and more accepted to talk about this and to then learn from it and grow from those experiences. And so there is the common experience of stress. I mean, you refer to the pandemic in a number of different ways and sort of everybody experienced the pandemic in different ways. But when we're talking about military, and you mentioned now you're talking to first responders, there's a different level of stress. Oh, I mean, absolutely. these are inherently dangerous, inherently stressful occupations, and not just combat or not just on the on the job for first responders, but just in general, these are professions that require people to experience a significant load of stress, um, maybe over and above what others are experiencing. And just because they respond poorly doesn't mean they're not resilient. No, absolutely not. Um, we all respond to these situations in different ways. I think part of it is learning that what are different ways to respond and what are different levels of support that are out there. And knowing that just because you are experiencing an adverse outcome of stress or trauma doesn't mean that you're bad, you did something wrong, you're damaged. You know, none of those really bad connotations that those stigmas tend to put on it. Rather that you went through a very human experience and one that we weren't equipped to go through, right? So you, you said it yourself, military and first responders experience stress and trauma on a different level. Um, one way to think about it is oftentimes military and first responders every day life is somebody else's worst day, right? So you think about police going to responding to these calls, your worst day is their every day, right? And so you are experiencing, they are experiencing these higher levels of stress and trauma. Um, and to, for them to know it's okay to talk about it um, and it's okay to get support for it. Right? You don't have to shoulder all of that and continue to fight through it. We have this really interesting kind of cultural phenomenon where we're almost proud of the stress we're under. Right? If we sometimes talk about, you know, oh, I only got five hours of sleep or I've been working these 60-hour weeks, you know, things like that. We have this almost level of pride and we don't need to have that. It's okay to say, you know, I'm clocking out at 5 p.m. I'm going home and I'm, t you know, I'm with my family now. Or it's okay that I'm talking to a therapist to unload some of this stress. I think that's where we're trying to get to that you can have this different levels of support. It's okay to talk about it. It's okay to get support for it. And I, in that, I absolutely agree with that. Um, and even carrying over some of the um, military values or military mindset of, you know, I just walk the farthest with the heaviest weight, right? right? And, and I'm just, in, and I'm broke and I'm tired and everything else. Um, but, but it sucks so good. Um, and, and maybe that's good when you're 
in, in your 20s, uh, but after a, a career or even after some very significant experiences like that, that can really, it doesn't matter how big somebody's capacity for stress is, sooner or later that capacity is going to be overwhelmed. Right. And I think in a similar way, we can be just as proud of the coping skills we have, right? We can be just as proud of our resilience. You know, yeah, I worked this 60 hour week, you know, there's some pride in that. Or, or as you said, I walked the longest with the heaviest pack, you know, and then I put the pack down and I went and talked with my friends for a little while. And I get to be just as proud about that fact, too. And I think that is is one thing that, that really making that shift that that second thing is a psychological resilience when mm-hmm. a lot of these things are physical resilience, right? You know, where I've stayed up for 48 hours straight or people describe uh, ranger school as 60 days of no sleep and no food. Okay. Um, that's physical resilience and there takes a level of mental toughness there. But what you're talking about here is psychological resilience um, that can really take us as far, if not far, farther than the physical resilience. Yeah. We, we have separated mind and body for whatever reason, right? We think about our physical capacity and we think about our mental capacity and we don't often realize how much those two are tied together, right? What impacts the body is going to impact the mind and vice versa. When we are really stressed out, our body's going to break down because of it. When we're stressing out our body, our mind's going to feel that. And for whatever reason, we have separated those two things. So what we're saying is let's bring it back together and let's think about how can you, how can you mentally support your whole body. And I think, and yes, again, the military has tried to um, you know, engage some of that psychological resilience over the last number of years, but it's always been about the physical resilience. Again, mm-hmm. it's always been the, the you know, one that can run the farthest, fastest, strongest, and, and everything else. Um, but now once a veteran is out of the military, that physical resilience is, you know, unless you move into another uh, occupation like that, is no longer as necessary. But now learning how to engage that psychological resilience can be challenging for them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there's many different ways you can boost some of that psychological resilience, too. I'm a therapist. I love therapy. I think anybody can benefit from therapy. I'm also the first to tell you it's not the go-to for everybody. And there are many different ways to get levels of resilience support. Um, And therapy is just one of those levels, right? There's also things like yoga or physical activities, going for a run with friends because you're connecting that social support together, you know, taking a day off and going fishing and just getting out in nature. There are all these other levels to support that resilience. Therapy is one of them and it's fantastic. And I think there needs to be a strong message that there are other things you can do too, but the point of it is to take that minute to be selfish, to focus on your own mind and focus on some of that inner strength you have and holistically look, think about your whole body. And I think that's something that a lot of service members and veterans um, is sort of, a, even what you just said is, is selfishness, right? That's a foreign concept to them because mm-hmm. it's always my shield covers my brother and sister. And if my shield isn't there, then my brother and sister is uncovered, right? Not thinking that my brother and sister's shield covers me, but yeah. it's always about me doing for other people for a lot of veterans. And it's hard to make that shift into self-care is care for my fellow veterans. Right. You know, there's that saying that we hear a lot of you can't fill a cup with an empty pitcher. Right. Or another way to think of it is, is you can't help other people if your own battery is low. Right. It, we're not saying don't go out there and help your, your brothers and sisters and be a shield for them. Absolutely. But how strong of a shield can you have if your own battery is completely empty? Right. So if you can take the time to refuel yourself, that gives you a better position to then support the other people in your community. No, and I, I think that is really important. Again, this idea of, 
getting beyond the idea of resilience being a buzzword, but actually saying it's something that can can definitely help us. So you're listening to Inside the Military Mind with me, your host, Dwayne France. My guest today is Nicole Weiss with the Lyda Hill Institute of Human Resilience. So one of the institute programs that some might be most familiar with, and you mentioned it earlier, is the clinical resource of the Veterans Health and Trauma Clinic. So this is a fully functioning outpatient behavioral health clinic that supports veterans and their families. That's part of the healing portion of the institute. Yes, it is. We've had that clinic going for... Uh, over five or six years now uh, for quite a while. It was also initially started by the Letta Hill Foundation. She's been such an amazing uh, proponent for our work. Um, and yeah, we see we see uh, primarily military and veterans. We also see first responders and individuals who have experienced trauma outside of those fields as well. Uh, we see mostly adults, uh, and then we are now seeing children younger than 12 years old. We have one therapist that sees younger than that. Uh, so we can take families and couples who are going through some of those experiences post-trauma as well. We also run groups like dialectic behavior therapy and uh, TREE, which is a trauma regulation and emotive therapy, uh, and work within families and couples. So we do quite the range of, of work. Um, and all of our therapists are specifically trained in trauma, and most of them have also worked with military and first responders as well. So when a military member comes into the institute, they know that they are going to be working with somebody who is specially trained in trauma and military. And I say that very specifically because there are so many therapists out there and a lot of them have these different skills and different specialties. Not everybody has been trained on trauma and it does take a unique experience to be able to have that therapy, therapeutic relationship with somebody who has been through trauma. So all of our therapists have been specifically trained in that and are able to work with somebody through that entire process. And one of the things that I've always valued about the, the UCCS clinic is when people think of university-based clinics, and I want to be very careful here because I don't want to denigrate any of our colleagues, um, but it is usually um, uh, both for the students, mm -hmm. but also like for the students who are getting trained in therapy and being a clinician, but also for the students who come there. Um, and so it's almost always seen as a, like a little bit of a training ground. Um, but this is a fully functioning standalone clinic with fully licensed professionals operating as, as well as those supervised through the, the doctoral program. Correct. Yes. So within the university system, there are actually two types of clinics. One is the Veteran Health and Trauma Clinic, which, as you said, is a standalone clinic. The UCCS system also has their own wellness program, which is where students would go to see a therapist within the university. So ours is completely separate. We do at times see students who have experienced trauma or are military because UCCS does have a high level or high number of students who are military students. So we do kind of have a little bit of mix in that. Um, but the institute or the, the clinic itself can will see community members more than students. Yeah, that's what I'm this idea of the the um, Veterans Health and Trauma Clinic is community facing, yes. whereas the University Wellness Center is really sort of campus facing. Correct. Yes. And so um, over the years, um, you have worked or, or the, the clinic has worked with a lot of people in the community very specifically, um, but it takes all kinds of insurances and works with the VA and things like that. Yes. Yes. We take uh, most most insurances. We do work with the VA and uh, working with the choice program so that uh, military can come to us by choice. And then we also do see some, or we have PhD students who are working on becoming uh, fully therapists and licensed. And so we also work on a sliding scale, so reduced cost if you see one of our interns. 
And so that's the um, uh, the healing portion of the institute. Another aspect of the institute is the training program, um, and this is something that that um, it many people around the community have started to see some of the advertising. I've really been encouraged to see some of that, and really, I think as you said, it just hit right in, in the way that it was supposed to at the beginning of the pandemic, um, and one that that. One of the programs really specifically supports military and first responder communities is the GRIT Serve program. So maybe talk a little bit about the GRIT program generally, and then maybe this program specifically for military and veterans. Absolutely. So, um, I, so as you said, we're colleagues. Um, you might know I just had a baby. Well, GRIT was my first baby. <laughs> so last year, again with the pandemic, our director uh, Charles Benite, he he has such a fascinating brain, right? And right when the pandemic was really starting to impact Colorado, things were shutting down. I think we were in the very first week of shutdown here in Colorado. Um, he called a meeting for us and said, you know, I just, I had a dream. I just keep thinking about how do we get our community members to support community members, right? What tends to happen in times of disaster and community stress is resources tend to be implemented and surrounded, right? So we think of Red Cross, right? And some of those other FEMA, some of those other organizations. And they come in and they support the community like crazy, right? We get all these resources, we get all these support, we get people checking in. And then the disaster is quote unquote over, and those resources leave, right? Well, what often happens in those times of disaster is it's when those resources leave that the community's really finally feeling the impact of what's happening, right? And they're saying, we now I need the support and the support is gone now, right? And so the initiative with GRIT is for community members to support the community whenever the disaster hits, whenever the disaster is over, right? And so GRIT stands for Greater Resilience Information Toolkit, And what it is, is a five-hour completely free training that anybody in the world can take that tells you what is stress, what is trauma, and specifically, how do you support your community member? So when I say community, that's whoever's close to your heart. That's your family, that's your coworkers, that's your military connections. Whoever is close to your heart, that's your community. And so GRIT teaches you how to reach out and check in. So, Dwayne, you're part of my community. If I felt like, you know, you're, I'm just not seeing you in staffing anymore. You know, when I do see you, you're looking really low. You're just not yourself. Grit teaches me the tools to reach out to you and say, hey, I just want to check in with you. You know, I've been thinking about you. I've noticed things are off. How are you really doing? And then give you some resources, give you some support to get through that moment. Now, they're not therapists. We don't train in therapy, right? I went to school for six plus years. A five-hour training is not going to do that. But what it does do is allows that avenue to start to open, to say, I'm concerned about you. I'm thinking about you. I want to genuinely know how you're doing, and I want you to get support. Um, and so that's what grit teaches. And it, it's, it started just this little, like, let's just see how this goes training. Uh, since we launched it in March of 2020, we have trained over 2,500 people across the world in 10 different countries, uh, I think 40 some States. So a lot of people have access to training to just reach out to your people and say, how are you? I think we've gotten into this habit of, you know, when we were in the office all the time, you know, we'd see a coworker and we'd say, how are you doing? And the coworker would say, I'm fine. And we'd go about our day. And what Grit asks you to do is slow down and say, no, genuinely, how are you doing? So we grew that program um, from just Grit Core. We've implemented an education track, a leadership track, a healthcare track. And as the year kept going, we really realized that our military and our first responders really needed some additional support as well. 
And so earlier this year, I worked with uh, Meadows Mental Health Policy Initiative in Texas, as well as the One Tribe Foundation, also based in Texas, to understand a little bit more of the military and first responder mind and to create a special curriculum just for them. So the uh, examples, the stories, the uh, kind of instructions within the training for GRIT Serve is particularly with a military and first responder mindset. And I think that uh, really that idea of when an incident happens, obviously here in our community, um, the wildfires a number of years ago, Waldo Canyon and Black Forest, and um, and there was a large outpouring of that. Um, uh, but as a community, we do a lot of things, and then we just sort of naturally go back to our, our regular lives. And I, I'm thinking about the parallel uh, between that and our individual lives, when trauma happens, when something um, uh, huge happens in our lives, everybody's there. Um, but then six months later, not a lot of people are there. You know, mm -hmm. maybe if we experience a very close personal loss, right? Everybody's there for the first two months with casseroles or what have you. But six or eight months later, and now that individual is really feeling that loss, or maybe when an anniversary comes along. Um, and so this sort of thing happens individually, but it also happens in communities. Um, and, and grit seems to be a way to be able to help people to say, well, check in six, eight months later after something bad happens. Mm -hmm. um, because, you know, we, again, we all go on with our lives and we're not thinking about supporting in the long term rather than just sort of that initial need. Right, exactly. Um, and it's, it's just having that conversation and being willing to have a conversation with your community. Or again, being willing to say, I've been thinking about you. I want to know how things are going for you. And not superficial, just genuine, right? That genuine interest in how are you doing with your life. And if you're struggling, well, here are things that I know can help. And here's some places you can go to get more help. And GRIT provides all of those resources. And the other thing that I really like about it is, is this really just helping individuals impact in their group, in their in their social group, one of the things we talk about with suicide prevention is you know be ready to help out or, or reach out. But I'm not going to go to the person in the checkout counter and say, "Hey, are you doing okay? You know, right. are you thinking of hurting yourself?" Right? Because that's that that's I mean, it, uh, Rajiv Ramshan from Rand he says it very be a very bleak world if we're just walking around thinking everyone's about to to hurt themselves. Right. But being able to say to somebody who is closest to you that you know very well, right, if my daughter was the checkout counter person, I would reach out and say that. But there's there's still some of that gap and grips, get, grit sort of um, uh, covers over that gap. Yeah. An example is last year, um, one of the – we call it a grit coach. Once you go through the training, you now are called a grit coach. One of the coaches reached out to us and just wanted to share her experience. She said that she reached out to a friend who she noticed had been a little off, right? So that same concept, genuinely reaching out, really saying, how are you? And as they were talking, the friend revealed that she'd been self-harming. And she revealed that she was actually in a pretty difficult space. Well, the GRIT coach was able to provide the crisis information that's provided in the training, which is just the National Crisis Line and, and some of those other resources. And that person was able to go on and get help, right? And maybe she would have done that on her own, but maybe not, right? And having that friend genuinely reach out and her being willing to admit some of the difficulties she's been experiencing and then to go get help. I mean, I'm literally getting chills when I remember that experience uh, because who knows what would have happened. And I genuinely believe that the more we educate and the more we're willing to talk about those struggles, the 
easier it is to get help and the more resources that will be available for us. And again, it's that idea of a, a suicide intervention is a last mile mm-hmm. um, uh, contact. Um, whereas if we have more of these genuine conversations earlier, um, then we're not going to get to the point. And somebody said, you know, I'm, I'm not thinking of hurting myself. I'm not self-harming. But things have been pretty bad these past couple weeks. Um, I may not be at that point, but we can have that conversation to get some things in place before I get to that point. Exactly. Before I really was working in the Institute, um, I also worked at a crisis center here in town. And one of the things we learned when we, because we would often do the suicide assessments, that was one of our, uh, that was their repertoire for every single client we saw is we'd have to go through that checklist. Um, But what we noticed is that more often than not, just being willing to ask those questions, how are you doing? Are you having those thoughts? gave that person a sense of relief that somebody's going to listen, right? Whether they were actually in there in that place of if I really might hurt myself or not, there was kind of this breath of, okay, I can actually, I can actually talk about this. All these things that I've been holding inside, I can talk about, right? And to be clear, we're not asking grit coaches to go and be these crisis counselors. That is a difficult conversation to have. You go through a lot of training to have those conversations. But what grit coaches can do and anybody in the community can do is say, I genuinely want to listen to you. And if I notice you're struggling, I want to show you what resources are out there. Now, it's up to that person to get those resources, right? But having that availability and having that listening ear can be a huge relief just to know that somebody's willing to be there. And so, and we all want to help those people that we care about, right? Um, But grit gives them the tools to be able to do that, right? Um, If I'm a bystander of an accident and I have no first aid training, I feel kind of helpless. I want to go help, but I don't know whether, you know, hold this or push that or whatever. Um, But grit gives people the tools to be able to exercise the care that they already have. Yes, exactly. So a lot of people say, well, I don't know what to say. I don't know what to ask. I don't know how to have this conversation. Grit provides those ideas. This is how you start that conversation. This is what you ask. And then this is what you give. Um, But so the grit serve, like you said, is more specifically geared towards military first responders and those that care for them. Yes, absolutely. So I am the wife of a law enforcement officer. Um, The other two people in the training that we we did with grit serve was a former military member and another wife of of a Leo. And so again, it had a little bit more of that mindset of these are the experiences military and first responders are actually having, and in particular, what they ha- what kind of experiences they had with the pandemic. So for instance, Sean Hanna is the one with um, MMHPI, which is the Meadows Mental Health Policy Initiative. He's our former military member. Um, he helped us find, or, you know, we, he helped us realize that for a lot of military members, the pandemic last year felt like a deployment, mm-hmm. right, which is not an experience any of us would have realized had he not brought that perspective in. So we were able to incorporate some of that edu- education into the training and talk about why did it feel like a deployment? How did how can you support somebody who might have felt that way? What kind of resources are out there? Hey, going into that, would love to hear maybe what his insights were. I mean, I've heard the same thing and in many ways experienced the same thing. Uh, but in what ways did service members feel like the pandemic was similar to a deployment? I think for them it was um, – this feeling of there's no going home right now, right? The pandemic is all encompassing, especially in those initial days. Um, Some military were deployed to hospitals to aid in some of those resources, especially on the East Coast or some of the bigger cities where the pandemic was felt a lot harder. So there was no feeling of going home at the end of the day. It's I'm here until this is over and we don't know when this is over. Um, There was also a huge lack of resources for a lot of them. And then this feeling of um, exposing my family to the trauma or exposing my family to, in, in the pandemic's case, safety, 
um, or, or lack of safety, right? So there was, you know, a lot of individuals who couldn't go back into their house. They stayed into in a hotel or they stayed in their garage so that they didn't expose their family members to potential pandemic, right? And so this feeling of separation, even while home. Um, and so that was kind of the experience he brought in of this is why it was such a struggle. And again, this this feeling of we don't know when it's over. It's still not over, uncertainty, right? Yeah. We're, we're a year and a half into this. It's still not over. And there's still a huge level of uncertainty in what's going to happen next, right? There's that feeling of the shoe's going to drop next. Um, and a lot of that can feel like what people feel in a deployment, just waiting for the next thing to happen. Yeah, no, I, I appreciate that. One of the things that I've seen and a lot of people that I've talked to who weren't in the military realized what time got weird, especially yeah. during the, the height of the, the pandemic, is that weekends didn't separate from weekdays, right? Everything just sort of blurred together. Um, in, in in the military, we called that ground fob day, right? Mm. Everything is the same thing over and over again. And the only difference is whether I'm going out on patrol or not today, right? But weekends didn't mean anything. You know, it didn't... I, we would actually lose track of the day. Is it Tuesday or is it Thursday, right? And I think that's one of the things that we saw that a lot of that, um, a lot of veterans experienced. But then again, yes, that isolation. And we know, again, we were talking about suicide in, uh, earlier, but uh, Joyner's interpersonal theory of suicide is that sense of isolation, right. that separatedness, um, thinking that no one really cares or, or anything like that, that can really cause a lot of distress if the veteran has felt that in other places. Right, right. And then I love that theory, by the way. It's what I did my thesis on. So if you think about it, too, on burdensomeness, right, if somebody if, if somebody did get sick with the pandemic um, or with COVID, sorry, um, if somebody did get sick or was exposed, right, then I don't want to burden my family with some of the things I'm going through. That goes right back into mental health concerns, too, right, and that feeling of I don't want to burden the somebody by sharing what I've been through, by sharing what I've experienced or continue to experience, which can lead more to that isolation. And that's why, again, if we can break some of those barriers and say it's okay to talk about it, then hopefully we can lessen some of that feeling of burden. But also not just that feeling of burden on the, the service member or veteran or the law enforcement or first responder, but on their family, right? right, right. I mean, my wife was with me for four out of my five deployments and retired with me. And, and, and she was on the show last week and, and she was a military spouse, experienced all of that mm -hmm. in a different way. The same thing with, with you and your spouse. Um, you know, I, I've heard it described as first responders is like 365 mini deployments, right? You know, right. they go out the door. And, and so being able to to um, provide support for those that care for those that serve. Mm -hmm. That's what Grit Serve does as well. Yes. Yep. So it talks about how do you support yourself as a military member or first responder? And if your wife is taking this training, how can she support you? Right. Or, or your, your kid or your parent, whoever that may be. And I think this is one of the things that um, if a, a service member, veteran, first responder takes this course, um, it really plays into their concept of I help other people. I don't, I don't need the help. Mm -hmm. Again, my shield covers my brother or sister. Um, but that idea of as they are helping, they are being helped themselves. Yes. Yeah. It's a fun little relationship that happens there. So if people wanted to hear more about um, the programs GRIT at large um, or GRIT Serves or, or just the Institute, how can they find that? Yeah. So for GRIT, you can go to letstalkgrit.com. It has all our, of our programs out there, how to access the training. Again, it's all free. 
every uh, training is five hours long. It's broken down into one hour pieces, so it's pretty digestible. It's all pre-recorded, so you can watch it at your own pace. Um, and you can sign up for one. You can sign up for all of them. They're all free. Uh, so let's talk grit.com. And then you can find out more about all of our institute programs, including grit, but also our community training. We do a lot of peer support kind of programs as well, as well as our healing and research divisions at resilience.uccs.edu. That's really great. I really appreciate you coming on the show today. Yeah, it's been great connecting with you again. I'm excited to continue to work on some of our passion projects together. Absolutely. I hope that you appreciated my conversation with Nicole. This week's Homefront Military Network Resource of the Week is Goodwill of Colorado. Goodwill of Colorado provides career development and community programs and resources for more than 100,000 Coloradans with disadvantages each year, including military veterans, seniors, youth, and individuals with developmental and economic challenges. Through its thrift retail operations, donations, social enterprises, corporate partnerships, and recycling processes, Goodwill has worked for more than a century in Colorado to ensure individuals have access to career and life pathways that allow them to live to their fullest potential and achieve their highest level of independence. Goodwill offers both statewide and Pikes Peak region programs and services for veterans. Their transitional employment program, Rehire Colorado, and Low Energy Assistance Program, LEAP, are both statewide services. Rehire Colorado is a transitional employment program helping individuals with barriers to employment prepare for successful work through paid on-the-job training and experience, including case management, job coaching, and career development. Goodwill's Low Energy Assistance Program, LEAP, in partnership with State of Colorado Department of Human Services, provides home heating assistance for residents facing financial challenges during the winter. LEAP provides home heating assistance to households with income up to 60% of Colorado state median income. Through the administration of LEAP, Goodwill helps break this barrier and allows residents to focus on their job search and caring for their families. The LEAP program begins November 1st and runs through the end of April. However, applications are processed as long as funding is available. To qualify for LEAP, applicants must be responsible for paying heating costs to an energy provider, fuel dealer, or as part of their rent, and be permanent legal residents of the United States and Colorado or have household members who are U.S. citizens. LEAP assistance is not intended to pay a household's entire cost of home heating, so it's important that the household continue to pay their heating bills. To connect with the LEAP program, Email leaphelp at discovermygoodwill.org or call 1-866-432-8435. For the Pikes Peak region, Goodwill offers services such as Goodwheels, staffing services, IT career training and placement, day program for seniors, and in-home support services. Goodwheels offers door-to-door service to help mobility-challenged individuals get to appointments, community engagements, and even run errands to the grocery store or pick up prescriptions. Goodwill's licensed and professional drivers carefully transport clients who use standard or bariatric-sized wheelchairs, along with individuals who are completely ambulatory. Goodwheels can take clients to any destination within a 20-mile radius for those paying through insurance and offers unlimited travel for private pay. Goodwheels offers door-to-door service to mobility-challenged individuals traveling to appointments, community outings, and important destinations. To access Goodwheels, call their dispatch line at 719-442-2077 between the hours of 7 a.m. and 7 p.m. Monday through Friday, and Goodwheels will take you where you need to go anytime between the hours of 3 a.m. and 10 p.m. by appointment. Thanks to Goodwill's Lift team, Learn, Improve, Focus, Thrive, IT training and certification program, you don't have to attend college to find a rewarding career and live your dream. 
Goodwill can help you become an A-plus and Network Plus certified IT help desk professional or enhance your IT career with a Security Plus certification and gain all the knowledge needed for a successful accreditation from CompTIA. Lyft's certifications and trainings focus on the fundamentals of security, networking, operating systems, troubleshooting, and technical support. You can also learn foundation-level skills to install, operate, manage, maintain, and troubleshoot a corporate network. Lyft can even enhance the careers of established IT professionals with Security Plus training. This sought-after course and credentials are targeted towards those in the IT industries who have networking and administrative skills in Windows-based TCP IP networks and familiarity with other operating systems such as OSX, Unix, and Linux, and want to further their career by acquiring a foundational knowledge of security topics. To access the Lyft program, call 719-439-2796. Goodwill's day program for seniors called Voyages provides a safe, caring, and engaging environment for seniors who need regular daytime supervision, but also want to maintain their independence and active lifestyle. Voyages is an innovative adult day program that presents a journey of discovery full of safe activities, interactions, new and familiar faces, and wonderful places. By wrapping a highly social and interactive experience around each participant, Voyages creates an engaging environment and a more interesting world. Voyages supports individual choice and presents a wide variety of fun, engaging activities for each participant, including fine arts and crafts, super social bowling, lighthearted exercise, better, bigger bingo, Snowzaline Serenity Spa, fun with food classes, and discovery excursions. Their safety-conscious and caring staff includes a full-time activity director, certified nursing assistants, and on-call registered nurses. All of the staff are CPR and first aid certified. Voyages is located at the Goodwill Administration campuses at 1460 Garden of the Gods Road. Round-trip transportation is provided for participants with the Colorado Springs city limits. Voyages is a Medicaid and Veterans Administration certified center that works with individuals, family, caregivers, and health professionals to provide care plans that are tailored to the individual. Call 719-785-9210 to learn more. Goodwill also operates a Colorado Health First certified in-home support services agency providing financial and other support to caregivers for loved ones with disabilities on Medicaid. Qualified caregivers can be paid up to 40 hours a week and receive free medical benefits. Your loved one can choose you as their personal care provider, whether you're their spouse, relative, friend, or another qualified individual. Discover Goodwill offers a salary of $12.41 an hour for non-skilled care tasks and $17 an hour for skilled tasks. You may earn a combination of these hourly rates based on the type of care you're providing. To learn more about this program, call 719-243-1159. Each year, Goodwill's life-changing programs and services support more than 100,000 Coloradans in need, contribute hundreds of millions of dollars to our economy through the power of work, train and mentor thousands of job seekers, provide community employment opportunities for thousands of individuals, and assist over 200 residents with their daily living needs. You can learn about all of Goodwill's programs and how to get involved through donating or volunteering and much more at goodwillcolorado.org. So I'm glad to be able to bring you the Homefront Military Network Resource of the Week. If you want to hear more about the Homefront Military Network, you can find them online at homefrontmilitarynetwork.org. If you'd like to find out more about the Family Care Center, you can find us at fcsprings.com. Family Care Center is the Pikes Peak region's leading provider of comprehensive behavioral health for service members, veterans, and their families. We prioritize you and your family with a wide range of outpatient mental health services, including individual, couples, group, and family therapy, as well as medication management. 
Heighten your emotional wellness and receive the professional care you need from the caring and highly skilled team at the Family Care Center. So thank you for taking the time to listen to the show. It'd be great to hear your feedback. I'd like to answer any questions you might have or know what you'd like to hear about. What topics about military and veteran mental health are you interested in? Send me an email to militarymind at fccsprings.com and there's a chance that we'll discuss it on an upcoming show. I'd also like to remind you that the information provided here is for educational purposes only. While I am a licensed mental health professional, I'm not your licensed mental health professional. If something we discussed on the episode brings up any concerns for you, it's highly recommended that you consult with a licensed mental health provider. Stay tuned for another great show next week. And until then, remember, you're not alone, ever. You've been listening to Inside the Military Mind, addressing mental health and wellness for service members, veterans, and their families. Sponsored by Family Care Center, Behavioral Health Services. Our family caring for your family. FCSprings.com. Tune in every Saturday at 11 a.m. for Inside the Military Mind on KPPF and listen to the companion podcast on Podbean. Family Care Center is a comprehensive outpatient behavioral health clinic providing critical mental health support to service members, veterans, family members, and our local community. Family Care Center focuses on the mental health and wellness of those who have served our country's military by providing best in-class evidence-based therapy, medication management, and transcranial magnetic stimulation. Family Care Center's clinical staff is dedicated to meeting every client's outpatient behavioral health care needs. This is Dr. Chuck Weber, inviting you to learn Learn more at fcsprings.com. Family Care Center, our family, caring for your family. Are you looking for more ways to learn about military and veteran culture? Are you a mental health professional or public health professional without lived experience in the military but find yourself working with veterans? Are you a caregiver or a family member of a veteran? Then you might be interested in a series of books that have been released with you in mind. By going to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash books, you can check out three books that give you an insight into veteran mental health from a combat veteran perspective. These books are a collection of short, consumable essays that discuss a wide range of topics related to mental health and wellness in post-military life. Head on over to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash books and check them out for yourself or follow the link in the show notes.